Welcome to the National Crawford Roundtable Podcast, a view of culture, current events, and politics through a biblical lens with your hosts, Neil Boron, Bob Duco, Roger Marsh, and John Rush. This episode will discuss the Christian view of socialism. Now let's join the conversation. Well, we are going to talk today about specifically the issue of socialism. We know in the presidential campaign that you have Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and some others who are openly suggesting kind of a socialism model. You look at the polls that are being taken now, especially the younger generation, and you see a a larger and growing number of millennials and youth that say that they actually embrace socialism over top of capitalism, which then begs the question, is socialism biblical? Was Jesus a socialist? How do we respond to this as Christians? What about this socialism thing? How do we even, John, how do we even properly define socialism? What's the difference between socialism, Marxism, communism? How do we even work through the definitions? Not a lot of difference between socialism and the communism end of things, if you ask me, because socialism is essentially the government running the means of distribution when it comes to goods and services. So when you start having the government control healthcare, for example, or they control factories, or they control you know any type of production that's going on in the country, that's truly what the socialists are talking about. And that's what they want to do. They want to try to even the playing field so that all of these quote-unquote evil corporations get knocked down to their knees and everybody has the same playing field. That's essentially what these guys are talking about. Where capitalism, as we all know, is a means of, of essentially a free market where the goods and services fro- you know flow freely depending upon supply and demand, prices based upon supply and demand, and a true free market, that's exactly what happens. You know, the reality of socialism is the, 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 the means of production controlled by the government. All right. And obviously, we're going to be getting into the biblical approach to this and was Jesus a socialist? And before we get to the scriptural aspect of this, Roger, why are so many youth embracing the idea of socialism? What's so appealing about it? I think the appeal for young people especially is the fact that everybody gets the same thing. Everybody's part of a big group. <laughs> You've got a whole idea, you know, with kids, young people, they've been taught, well, we do everything in groups. Try to get a, a, a group together in an academic sense, for example, and give them the opportunity to do anything without having all of their work there. It's not going to happen. It's just that the kids are, they're, they're so wired to think that everybody has to have the same thing. And it's dangerous. It really is dangerous when you consider that they don't do what John did. I mean, they do what... Everybody else has to have the same thing. And so that, that they've been taught that in school. They've been taught that in the media. They've been taught that all the way through. And unfortunately, Generation X parents are the ones who raise them to think that this is appealing. So in the church, outside the church, it's just kind of groupthink uh, run amok. You know, what's interesting, though, is I don't know how many of you saw this. It was really funny. There was a conservative group. I don't know if it was campus reform or somebody, but they went to, I believe it was Georgetown University, if I remember right. This was probably a couple of months ago. And they were asking the kids on the college campus, uh, you know, with the camera and man on the street kind of questions. It's like, do you support socialism, uh, a redistribution of wealth? Do you, you know, and they go, oh, yes, absolutely. That's the right thing to do. And then they asked him, what's your grade point average? Uh, well, 3.8. Okay. Would you be willing to go ahead and give up some of your grade point average so that we can spread it around <laughs> and give everybody the same 2.9? And then suddenly, I know, then suddenly the kids were like, well, no, because I worked yeah. hard for my 3.8. Now they're all capitalists. <laughs> I know, exactly, you know. And it's like, it, it was so interesting to see how these kids suddenly realized, well, no, wait a minute here. I, if this is something that I earned, other people have a responsibility to earn it as well. You know, and then, but I get to thinking, okay, but what about 
the kids with a 1.5 or a 2.0, maybe it's not because they're lazy. Some of them just aren't as smart as you, and it's more difficult for them. So isn't this kind of academic injustice, and don't you have a responsibility to share and have the college take away some of your points to give it to those that are less fortunate that don't have as much brain power as you? Uh, I'll tell you what, Neil, the kids were not going for that. Well, and and I'm not surprised because, you know, the ones with the 3.8 grade point averages feel like they – Earn those, and and that actually might be one of the few things that kids really work towards earning anymore. Uh, perhaps mm-hmm. athletic achievement, or you know, some prowess in, in the area of music or the arts or something like that. But I, I was thinking about this, you know, in light of our conversation today, and I was thinking about like a post World War II. Uh, phenomenon where, you know, people had to get started with virtually nothing and, you know, they got into starter homes and they worked, they built businesses and, and tried to make it better for the next generation. Then the next generation came along, did the same thing. The next generation did the same thing. And now here we are with, you know, kids going to school uh, with mom and dad paying for everything or the federal government paying for everything. But most kids aren't having to work their way through school. And I realize that's a stereotype, but, um, When we live in a generation where everything is handed to you, you appreciate very little, have to work for almost nothing, and expect that everything's going to be given to you. So in that sense, socialism sounds right. It sounds fair. Why wouldn't they be confused about that kind of thought? Because it sounds like what they're used to. Mm -hmm. Now, do we, though, do we already practice a certain measure of socialism already? I I mean, John, if you think about it, ever since FDR and the uh, yes. And yes. The, the New Deal, and then of course the Great Society, and there's almost this this sense of we've been moving down the road of socialism, and you, you kind of yes. wonder how do we define when we officially have crossed into socialism as opposed to merely redistributive uh, kind of policies. Well, and honestly, Bob, we're going to try to you know condense this down. I know into one podcast, one show, because this is such a, an in depth conversation we could literally do you know week after week on this same topic because right. it's so it's so ingrained literally in every single area of life including the church which I know we're going to talk about I firmly believe that what you just said is correct yes we are in right now a quasi socialistic country to a large extent we'll talk a lot about that today and I also firmly believe that this has all been by design the the communist years and years and years ago you know 75 years ago said they would take this country over from within they'd never fire a shot they'd be able to take us over without ever sending their army here to do so you know military forces here to do so and the reality is that's exactly what's happening the communist manifesto and what was and what was dictated there is exactly what's happening in this country today Saul Linsky the rules for radicals all of those things right now guys is exactly what's happening and unfortunately because of the way they've infiltrated our public school system and they've been working hard on our kids, I believe in a, in a brainwashing mode, not, not even a teaching mode, but literally a brainwashing mode. We literally have the same problems now inside of the church because a lot of the people that are running the church, and I'm talking church in general, no particular denomination, but because we've had that brainwashing for so many years now, this whole idea of socialism has infiltrated the church as well. All right. Well, let's explore that. Let's talk about Jesus. First of all, was Jesus a socialist? I mean, Roger, there are a lot of people that believe that Jesus practiced and believed in the concept of socialism. Yeah, and one example that they might cite would be Matthew 20, where there's the parable of the, the workers in the vineyard and the fact that uh, you know the, the, he goes out and 
calls, the landowner calls these workers at the beginning of the day, then at nine o'clock, then at noon, all the way through. And when he starts paying everybody at the end of the day, he starts with the ones who were hired last and gives them a full day's wage. And then it gives everybody the same wage. And so people would look at that and say, oh, well, obviously Jesus was a socialist, right? But the point of that parable is, no, that we're talking about rewards in heaven. We're not talking right. about redistribution of wealth, you know? So right. it, it's pretty easy to shoot some holes in some of these issues. I don't see Jesus as a socialist at all. I mean, there are just as many. He, he talks more about money than anything else in, in the New Testament and the fact that we are to be good stewards, to be responsible with it. But look at the parable of the talents. You know, one servant is given ten, one's given five, one's given one. They're, they're all given different based on their ability. So the idea that that there's something something wrong with, you know, not having a level playing field like that. Uh, for opportunity, absolutely. But in terms of actual results, and that's what socialism does, because they control the supply and demand of the different, uh, you know, if the government's going to control that, then they can they can control some outcomes, too. And yeah. you, you see it with government pension. Welcome to the People's Republic of California, where we yeah. have state mandates yeah. that the public employee's retirement system has to be funded with a guaranteed outcome, a guaranteed benefit, as opposed to a guaranteed contribution, and let the market decide. And the state's going bankrupt. I mean, they don't talk about it. There's lipstick on a pig going on out here. But the reality is uh, the state is going bankrupt because hardworking police officers, firefighters, teachers, or whatever have been told, if you retire at this age, you will guaranteed get this pension instead of like the rest of us who put it in a 401k or an IRA and you watch it grow and see what happens. I mean, the, the idea that Jesus was a socialist, I don't see anywhere in Scripture. Yeah, you know what? I'm not seeing it either. And I know that a lot of... Uh, presidential candidates, of course, and, and Democrats all very often cite things such as Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats, uh, when uh, when Jesus is talking about, you know, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, you clothed me, this type of thing. And, you know, you do the least of this, did this for the least of these, you did this for me. And somehow this is turning into this argument that the government is the one that's supposed to be doing this. And if you read Matthew 25, you don't see Jesus saying, so here's how we do this. Here's the mechanics of this. We need to petition Rome to reach into other people's pockets to feed the poor and clothe them and provide water for them. No, he's instructing us to give of ourselves freely and voluntarily. And we're going to talk some more about this and continue on. Uh, coming up after this short break here on the National Crawford Roundtable podcast. We would like to encourage you to listen to, help, and support the ministry of Steve Gregg. Steve is the host of The Narrow Path, heard around the country on various Crawford broadcasting stations. He has over four decades of experience studying the Bible, and his passion is that everything in life, culture, and theology should be looked at through the lens of Scripture and letting Scripture itself be the ultimate authority. The Narrow Path is heard Monday through Friday, and you can find a station near you by going to thenarrowpath.com. The Narrow Path is also 100% listener-supported, so be sure to reference the Crawford Podcast, NCR. Continuing our discussion, Neil, what about the issue of Jesus being a socialist and this claim that we're hearing in the playing of the Matthew 25 uh, sheep and the goats that Jesus discussed? Is there really a biblical argument to say that Jesus was a socialist. No. People start thinking about compassion, you know, for the poor, kindness to those who are hurting, and they say, well, certainly Jesus was compassionate, and he was kind, so they make the leap to try to imply that somehow he would have favored socialist ideas. I don't think so. I'm thinking uh, about Luke 12, when someone in the crowd says to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. 
And he says to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Kind of like, I'm, I'm not getting involved <laughs> in, hmm. in that kind of stuff. Uh, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. Is he saying, you know, give everything to the government uh, and let the government make all of the decisions for you? No, I think what he's really doing is laying the groundwork for what would later become the separation of church and state, ultimately. There are things that are spiritual and there are things and, and eternal and there are things that are temporal and earthly. And Jesus was all about personal responsibility. You know, the Good Samaritan, the story he told about the Good Samaritan, uh, he doesn't say that, you know, here's a guy hurting on the side of the road, and uh, everybody was passing him by, the priest and the Levite, and so Mm -hmm. uh, the government stepped in, you know, to help bandage his wounds. No, a Samaritan comes by, gets personally involved, and uses his personal finances to reach out, and that's what I hear Jesus saying, you know, that we're to be compassionate towards the poor by getting personally involved in their lives and offering some personal sacrifice to help those who are needy. Right. I mean, the widow and her uh, two small coins, the widow's mites. I didn't see Jesus say, well, no, wait a minute here. You hold on to that, and let's petition Rome to reach into some other people's pockets to more evenly distribute wealth because you're suffering from economic injustice. But, you know, John, I'll tell you, there's a lot of people out there that are pushing this idea that Jesus somehow promoted socialism. No, you're exactly right. As you guys were talking for grins, I just Googled, was Jesus a socialist? And granted, Google's very tainted on the liberal side of the fence. Uh We all know that. But literally, I had to get to the third page of Google to even find an article that talks about Jesus not being a socialist. And of course, it's an Mm -hmm. article written by David Barton, you know, our good friend, you know, who who understands that probably better than anyone. But, you know, that it just shows you how tainted things have gotten to where literally they're they're using Jesus, which I, by the way, guys, I I despise. They're using things in, in Christianity, you know, in scripture to taint what they want done. And the reality is it's, it's nothing could be farther from the truth. And they're taking what Jesus talks about a lot in scripture when it comes to what they would consider to be socialism to be what we need to do as, as personal responsibility. And, and that's something that they're forgetting. To you guys' point, nowhere did Christ say, yeah, Caesar, you should be doing X or the government should be doing X. No, he's talking about us. I'm a, I'm a big believer, guys, that had the church really stepped up and did what it was supposed to do during the Depression, we wouldn't have some of the programs that we have today. In my opinion, I and I wasn't alive then, so I have to be careful in what I say here, but in my opinion, we shirked a lot of our duties back in the day upon the government. And, I, and I'll tell you what, a lot of churches do this today. They will send somebody down to the welfare line to get some help rather than starting their own food bank in their own church. Yeah, we do need to step up. And Roger, let me ask you about this. So what about the church? Because there are those who push the socialism model. Model, they'll say that the disciples practice socialism in Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 40, 44. It says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Acts chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 32, it says, all the believers were of one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were, no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, bought the, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Devil's advocate, people say, hey, you know, Roger, that sure does sound like socialism to me. Yeah, it certainly does. There's just one problem, and the problem is in the way these terms are defined. If you look at what Jesus said in uh, John thirteen thirty four and 35, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved mm-hmm. you, so you must love one another. He's got Jews, Gentiles, Samaritans, men, women, all coming together. And basically he's saying, no one is going to believe it. 
but they'll, they'll, they'll have to know it was God who brought you guys together if all of you people are, are living together. So now when you see the verses like you cited in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 4, about everybody gave as they had need or whatever, the reference there is that the church is rallying together and saying, we realize, if you look at like the Corinthian church, for example, how many people were delivered out of, you know, out of sin into salvation and wound up losing jobs as a result of it. They were working as, as uh, masoners and the, the stonecutters, woodcutters, things like that on these uh, basically satanic temples. Now they can't find work anywhere, so of course you're going to rally together. But the same way, I would hope, you know, that all of our churches, the four of us that are represented here, if someone had need and came to the elder board or whatever, I know we have a special pastor's fund, you know, it's kind of on the down low, if you will. We don't broadcast it to everybody, but people know it's there. If someone has a need within your congregation, of course, you're going to take care of your brothers and sisters. But the implication here is they'll take a verse like this and say, and that means you have to feed the whole world. You have to take care of all of those problems. The way I read this and look at the original text is this is the church being the church for the church. And then right. other people on the outside right. can look at this and say, okay, well, if this is the way the church handles it, I want to know what you guys are doing. And so they hang around. My church, as an example, is near a retirement community, the one of our campuses is. And we were approached by a, a social agency a couple of years ago about being a distribution center for a food program. For It's kind of a fresh fruit and vegetable type of thing for seniors. And we thought, okay, well, we can use our social hall for that. We're not really equipped for overnight stay, but we could do something like that. And we were stunned at how a pretty affluent area, we have a couple hundred people running through every Friday, you know, getting the food. And so they're coming to us and watching our church kind of help them. And it's a good outreach. But at the end of the day, we are happy to provide that for the community. But if we don't take care of our own, first and foremost, I think what the, the, the yeah. scripture is very clear. That's the mandate. All right. So, Neil, so Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, this is not socialism in practice uh, as... As Roger's saying here, then, we should not – there's a difference between voluntarily the church and believers coming together and doing this uh, on their own as opposed to petitioning the government to reach into other people's pockets. Yeah, and it's a beautiful thing when it happens. I don't think it's socialism. I think it's the essence of Christianity you're reading about in Acts 2 and Acts 4. But at the same time, I also want to be a little bit cautious in the sense of saying that that I think that the church, we have the tendency, I think, in Christian circles to kind of pat ourselves on the back because we do a lot. I mean, thank God for pregnancy care ministries, you know, that are providing for the needs of single moms and or caring for people who've chosen to take the lives of their babies, you know, either way, saying we're going to step in, we're the ones who are going to help. And those are all self-funded. Uh, groups like Samaritan's Purse, I think that came up on one of our earlier podcasts, we were talking about the work of Samaritan's Purse. I mean, the church has done tremendous things, but at the same time, we see that the average Christian, while we claim to believe in tithing or at least New Testament giving, where we say, hey, everything we have belongs to God and we can freely give because we freely receive, the reality is that the average regular churchgoer gives about 3% or less of their income. So on the one hand of this equation, you've got, well, this isn't the government's responsibility. On the other side, if you flip the coin, it's really this is what the church was created to do and to be. And when we do it, it works well, and I think a lost and dying world looks at that and says, man, this is incredible. These people have something special. Look at how they love one another. I don't think we should run too far ahead and say that the church is doing an exceptional job, because I think that some people have been wounded, you know, looking at spiritual abuse in the church or the abuse of money and power in churches. And we see that stuff in the headlines all the time. So when a multi-million dollar church, you know, blows up and the world watches, they have a lot of questions about what's going on. You see pastors preaching in $4,000 sneakers when the people in the congregation are generally poor. 
And that, to me, that represents spiritual abuse. So I guess what I'm getting at here is that maybe in some ways we've abdicated our responsibility, even though we're the champions of love, really, ultimately, because we know what love really is. That being said, we're going to take a quick break and we'll continue our conversation here on the National Crawford Roundtable. At Crawford Broadcasting Company, we hear from so many listeners about how much they've grown through the teaching ministry of Pastor Alistair Begg on Truth for Life. What an impact this ministry has made over the years as Alistair Begg, with his unmistakable voice, faithfully proclaims God's truth each day so lives can be transformed. Here at CBC, we value the great partnership we share with Truth For Life and want to make sure their broadcast can continue on our stations for years to come. If you enjoy studying God's Word verse by verse each day with Alistair Begg, you should consider sending Truth For Life a gift of support. Make your donation today. Visit truthfullife.org or call 888-588-7884. And be sure to let them know which CBC station you listen to each day or that you listen to this NCR podcast. So, I don't know, guys. That's my take. Anybody want to respond to that? Anybody have any thoughts? Yeah, what about it, guys? Is the church kind of dropping the ball here? You know, yeah. As I said earlier, Neil, I, I would agree with a lot of what you're saying. Although, when you look at statistics, when it comes to charitable giving that goes on, on the on the Republican or the conservative side versus the liberal side, guys, it is a huge difference from one side to the other. And in case in point, even with the presidential candidates that are running, when you look at actual charitable giving from these guys that are literally millionaires, Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden and the like, and you compare that to what probably even the four of us give, we probably as not not even collectively, <laughs> we probably each individually give more than what the Joe Bidens and Bernie Sanders of the world do. And we're not in the same class that they're in. So, you know, Neil, I agree with you. And yet I do believe that conservatives, while we don't give enough, and and the reality is no, most people do not give enough. That's a whole nother topic, by the way, Bob, we could do in the future Mm -hmm. as far as, you know, what is the responsibility of a a good, solid, you know, Bible-believing Christian? What should they be giving? I believe, frankly, folks, it's far more than 10%, but that's my own opinion. And I believe that giving— Giving is a law of life, by the way. I think right. people that, that give, whether you're, whether you're a Christian or not, there's a law of life about giving where, where what you give will come back to you. I, I believe that firmly. I think that's something God set up at the creation. Now, we, again, that's another deep topic for a, for a later date. But I think that's a principle, though, that we inside the church understand. We support that. We live it. And the other side of the fence, to, to Neil's point, you know, the liberal side would rather say, you know, we believe in helping the poor, but we want the government to do it. We're not going to do that ourselves. We want to set up a program. Let's set up a, you know, let's set up a division inside of our own city or inside of our own county or inside of the, the federal government that will handle said, you know, problem. And the reality is that should be the church's responsibility. You know, if we have a bunch of heroin addicts someplace, it's, you know, in Denver, we wanted to pass out needles to help heroin addicts and have shoot up places inside the city of Denver. Fortunately, that got shot down by our state government. But the reality is that that's what I'm talking about. That should be the church's responsibility to come along and love and help and nurture those individuals that are in that need, not the state's responsibility. That's my opinion. All right. Now, devil's advocate, uh, Roger, let me throw this to you. Uh, Here's what we hear in response to that from the left. Oh, then you guys want no government programs whatsoever, no safety net whatsoever. What are you going to do with that little old lady who's not able to work? She doesn't have any food. And if the church doesn't step up, I guess we just let her die in the street. So uh, how do we answer the argument and the claim that we therefore believe in zero government involvement and zero safety net of any kind? 
Well, I think to answer that question, first and foremost, we have to look in the mirror and say, you know, back to the points that John and Neil were making about Christians' involvement when it comes to giving. I think Neil's bringing up the statistic about the 3%. And unfortunately, that's been the way it's been as long as I've been paying attention to numbers like that, like you are. Uh, 3,000 different people, you know, or 3% of the giving, you know, for a few thousand people isn't going to solve the problem that you've got. And the reality is, um, we ha- we can look at the programs anecdotally and say, sure, the church should do this, the government should do that, this is the way life's supposed to be. But the reality is, if we don't have these programs in place right now because we're so used to them, then yeah, we, we run the risk of elderly people dying and things like that. So before the the church can start going out and decrying all the government programs that we rely on so heavily, uh, there needs to be a concentrated effort for the church to step up and and be the church. I was just reading a news break during one of your uh, your guys' uh, conversations here about Bernie Sanders having to go to the hospital, get a couple of stents. And I thought, right. gee, 100 years ago, Bernie Sanders would have gone to, a, if he went to a hospital because he got the money to pay for a doctor, he would have gone to a hospital that was run by a church. It was a denominational Presbyterian hospital or a Catholic hospital or you know Methodist hospital, mm-hmm. whatever it was. And he would have gotten really great care and there wouldn't have been any charge for it necessarily because that's where hospitals you know, came from. It was the church caring for the people in the community who couldn't afford medical care. Uh, so much has changed. It's a huge undertaking, but I guess it goes back to personal responsibility, doesn't it? Well, Each of us say, yeah, okay, it, well, what, what yes. can we do? Yeah, and Roger, it does. And, and you can look at, you know, Timothy 5, 1 Timothy 5, 8, for example, and it's a great verse that talks about this very thing. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse, was worse than an unbeliever. We have shirked that particular responsibility. We have forgotten that verse. And even we as Christians rely on the government to do what we inside of our own family should be doing, guys. Yeah. No, yeah so and can I jump in too? Yeah. Just another example, real quick. Uh, and I know, Bob, you've got a lot to say here, but, um, Orphan Sunday. It's coming up in November. I believe November 10th is the day. Last I looked, and the numbers may have changed slightly, but there was 800-some-odd churches in the U.S. decided to do anything about Orphan Sunday, where they're going to maybe show a quick video or at least draw to the attention of their congregation what's going on with children in foster care and uh, who are awaiting adoption. Uh, In Mississippi leads the way with 215 churches or something, and New York State, New York State, as of last week, had 16 churches signed up for Orphan Sunday. So wow. what I'm getting at here, mm-hmm. in, in western New York where we live, there's about where I live, there's about 300 uh, children awaiting adoption, but there's 3,000 churches. So if just one in ten, you yes. know, as a congregation said, we'll step right. up and we'll help. So I, I'm not saying that the church, in in one sense, that, that every problem can be handled if all of a sudden we just decide to live differently. But man, the landscape would look way different if we took a little bit more responsibility and didn't wait for the government on stuff like this. See, and I think well you're said. absolutely right. And, and here's what part of the problem is. And I'm not making excuses for the church, of course. We do need to step up. But our culture has been so socialized and the government has been the dependent source for so many people that it's almost like the church has gotten a little bit lazy because they realize, well, you know, the government's taking care of all these programs. It doesn't fall on us anymore. And what happens is when somebody else takes care of something, then you tend to say, well, okay, I don't have to worry about it. And so I would argue that the church, unfortunately, has developed a sense of laziness and apathy in this area because of the fact that the government's stepping in. But, uh, guys, it doesn't seem to me that that gets us off the hook, even if the government is stepping in and doing more than they should be doing in this area, that's not a reason for us to pull back and do less. Agree. 
But uh, tell you what we're going to do, though. We are going to continue this uh, National Crawford Roundtable podcast for the second half hour. We're going to be discussing in the second half hour a lot of other aspects of socialism, a biblical response to this. What is the best way to help the poor? What about free health care, free college, all that kind of stuff? So uh, we're going to continue this. You can get this podcast at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, and more. You can also find it online at CrawfordBroadcasting.com. Continuing our discussion on the National Crawford Roundtable podcast with John Rush out of Denver, Roger Marsh out of Southern California, Neil Boron out of Buffalo, New York, myself, Bob Duco out of Detroit, Michigan. Uh, let's talk, guys, about the, the helping of the poor. Uh, I've always contended that socialism and government dependency programs, that this doesn't help the poor. This perpetuates Poverty, yes, the best way. To, exactly. The best way to help a poor person is turn him into a former poor person, but it That's does right. seem like, uh, unfortunately, right. we're keeping people poor. No, we do, Bob. In fact, I, I'm, I am a firm believer, and this is actually, I, th- I believe, the mantra of the left. It's why they want a lot of the programs that they have. You know, it, it, there's the old saying, guys, it's called the golden rule. The guy with the gold rules. That's, that's really what that means. And, and in this particular case, you know, the, the, the golden rule is the government, and they're the ones with the funds. And if they can keep their thumb on you, and they're providing every single thing that you have as a need, well, then, well, then by all means, they're going to dictate to you what you do in your life. And that's exactly what they want, which is not biblical at all, guys. Right. Well, it, it, grab a hold of that, uh, Roger, if you would, because it, there is this perception that if you don't support big government programs, then you don't really care about the poor. Yeah, that's unfortunate, too, because uh, so they'll cite the proverb that says, you know, he is kind to the poor, lends to the Lord, and that type of thing. And, and I, I understand, you know, where the heart is for that. But it kind of goes back to, to motives, basically. The question with a lot of government programs, they're kind of like a lot of medical programs these days. Are we, in fact, trying to help cure a disease, or are we just trying to treat symptoms? And if you've got people who have grown up with the whole great society thing, you know, think about people our age. If they were born in the 1960s, born in the 50s, you know, even the late 60s, and all they've known is there's a program here. And all they know, there's a colleague of ours. I won't mention her by name, but single mom was on a a program, was working for a, a broadcasting company. And at one point, she was presented the opportunity to get a promotion. And she was so excited until she realized that even with the pay raise that went along with it, she'd actually be having a cut in her household income because of the fact that she'd be losing a government program. And she really wrestled with it and really prayed and just took a step of faith that said, I want this. And now she's doing great. She's a business owner and that type of thing. But she had to make a decision that a lot of people, when they're confronted with it, will look at it and say, uh... You know, mm-hmm. I don't know what to do. Yeah, at yeah, best, yeah. at best, a program like uh, like this is going to help somebody up and out of the situation they're in. But unfortunately, so many government programs, as John mentioned, they're designed to perpetuate the dependency. They are, and Neil, to uh, to John's point here, Roger's point, uh, it we do have to have a heart for the poor, absolutely. But doing it through government programs, it does seem as though we're not really helping the poor; we're just keeping them poor and. I would argue as well, it does tend to breed laziness because we're not, you know, we're not talking about people that are unable to work. Right now, these Medicare for All programs are basically saying that uh, you should be able to be dependent upon the government and have the government pay your bills and give you money even if you're able-bodied, even if you're able to work. 
And I think to myself, well, Second Thessalonians 3.10 is pretty clear. If a man will not work, he will not eat. But in this day and age, we're basically being told and conditioned to think if you don't want to work, even though you're able to, that's okay. Live off the government. And if you oppose that, then you oppose helping the poor. Yeah, and it's a pretty tricky situation. And by the way, I agree with what you guys are saying here. Um, I, part of the problem, as I see it, is no one in no elected official that I'm aware of, or very few elected officials, are going to stand up and say what you just said because they're dependent upon the votes of the people that are right. receiving the assistance. Right, Neil. Great and point. so it's like this vicious cycle that keeps going around and around. Uh, Dr. Kevin Lehman, who's a marriage and family expert, you guys know him, but he, uh, yeah. best-selling author, whatever, right. he says the the healthiest child is an unhappy child. <laughs> Why? Because <laughs> because kids find ways to be creative and they learn how to play. Uh, the, you've heard the term necessity is the mother of invention. You know, the human spirit's an amazing thing. And mm-hmm. I think that in a free market, people... Uh, are inspired to create and to innovate and to uh, and to invent stuff and and they end up prospering. It's what we saw, you know, with with uh, immigration and Ellis Island and people coming to to experience a better life in North America, leaving whatever they had in in the old world and coming here. And it's what America was ultimately built on. But I think, you know, this economic assistance has become a drug. And it's really hard to think about giving up a drug. So it really, essentially, they're looking at withdrawal, and that doesn't look like a happy thing. And, and, and Neil, to your point, we continue to to perpetuate that. You know, a good example of that, guys, is the the tariffs that we're experiencing as we speak. And and I'm not picking on the farmers, so please, nobody think that I am. I love the farmers. I love the fact that we grow more food as a nation than probably any other country in the world. We literally feed the world, and I'm very thankful for that. But, But I say all that to say this. We as a government... Because we are the government, by the way. That's the other thing that always bugs me. People talk about the government's money. The government has no money. It's mine. It's the money I'm giving in my tax dollars. That's the money that we're talking about here. And the reality is, you know, we have written checks to the to the farmers because of the tariffs that we've instituted. And we write far too many checks, Neil, to your point, as as literal subsidies. We literally write these guys checks or tell them not to plant a crop and we'll write them a check. And, again, the, the government has become this this drug dealer to the farmer, if you would, because a lot of what you're talking about, Neil, and guys, if we don't stop this stuff, it's just going to continue mm-hmm. to perpetuate. It really is. It really is. Uh, I want to ask you guys about, though, terms like economic justice, economic injustice. These are really popular buzz terms today, and we hear that all the time. Neil, how do we handle stuff like that in, in terms like that? Uh, you know, I've heard the term. I'm not entirely familiar with it. I get the gist of what economic justice is trying to say or injustice either way, um, that it revolves around these very issues. But to go back to the previous point for just a second, I, I saw an article in, in the Washington Examiner uh, recently, and it, it talked about that in 1981, 44% of the world's population was classified as living in extreme poverty, which means that they were earning something like less than $2 a day. Uh, that was according to the World Bank. But in 2013, uh, that number had declined to just 10%. So a mm, tremendous yeah. change. Why? And right. it was the direct result of a, of a number of large countries, including China, India, and Russia, largely converting to free market economies and away from socialism. Mm-hmm. And just exactly what we're saying happened. People stepped up, and there's more economic justice, I'm putting that term in quotes, in a situation like that where people have an opportunity to prosper and to work for a living and to have something to show for it. And, and in the end, 
it's good for everybody, including the economy itself. Does it encourage greed, Roger? That's one of the things that uh, Pope Francis has said. Many others on the left as well do, that capitalism kind of creates and encourages greed. Well, it depends on what your definition of greed is. In all honesty, I mean, there's either greed or there's incentive. A capitalistic market provides opportunities for incentive, incentive to do better, to meet a need in the marketplace, to provide a good or a service that somebody can actually benefit from. And that's healthy. I mean, you can't create that need. You can't manufacture it. Some companies like to try to do it, but they will. As long as there's sin in the world, there's always going to be greed. There's always going to be someone who's trying to cut corners, someone who's trying to squeeze out the little guy, buy up the competition, whatever, keep the the playing field unlevel. I, it was the noted theologian Bono from uh, the group U2 who said, <laughs> I've become convinced that the cure for poverty is a job. You know, it's a free market economy. This is the right. guy who used that one campaign to say, hey, let's cancel third world debt. Let's, you know, let's give the world a Coca-Cola and everybody seeing in perfect harmony. And as he watched those statistics that Neil just cited, which are staggering because considering that the population has grown and yet the percentage declined in the number of people in abject poverty has gone down to such a small percentage of the world's population you realize that the solution, first and foremost, has more to do with the government getting out of the way than for the government coming in and trying to help. We've seen it in our own economy. I mean, uh, the, the current administration is enjoying tremendous economic success here simply by getting rid of some of the shackles of the previous administration that were put in place to provide, quote unquote, protections and safeties. But at the end of the day, they really held back. We probably could have been out of the Great Recession a lot sooner if we didn't have all the, quote unquote, help from the government. So in terms of the greed factor, the, the issue really comes down to what are the motives? You know, John's a business owner. He's very entrepreneurial. I admire him for having that, you know, gusto and getting out and doing that. Mm-hmm. But John's motive, first and foremost, is I want to help people. I'm incentivized to make an honest profit, provide a good and service that people actually need. He's not out there thinking, you know, he's not up at three o'clock in the morning going, how can I put this guy out of business and what underhanded things can I do? So a guy like John Rush is a great example of God's economy working the way God wants it. But we can't be naive to the fact, too, that there are greedy you know, pers- people who take right. capitalism and use it mm-hmm. to their own advantage. So I, I, don't think it, I don't think capitalism encourages greed. I think sin does. How about that, John? Yeah. I mean, you're a businessman, and uh, mm-hmm. you're going to get people that look at you and say, oh, you're lining your pockets, and I guarantee you're making more money than your lowest-level employees. And so there is this perception that and somehow capitalism and greed. <laughs> well, and you know, and, and by the way, that's how <laughs> it ought to be. Yeah. There's nothing wrong well, with that. I would that. hope I am. I mean, I yeah. coach businesses on a daily basis, guys, and I would hope that even the businesses that I coach, the owner is making more money than their lowest level employee because the idea is for that person to do so. They have taken on all of the risk. They've got all the investment. They've put in all of the late nights. They've put in all of the worry. I mean, all the things it takes to run a business. And by the way, they're the ones that also go without a paycheck when everybody else gets one when times are tough. So, yeah, I hope the guy at the top is actually rewarded for that. And I think – you know, what this really boils down to, I think Roger said it in, in a way a moment ago, but really what this boils down to, guys, is are we talking about greed, which in some cases, yes, it probably is greedy, or, or is it just self-interest? I mean, my self-interest is, yeah, I want to make money, guys. I'm not going to deny that. I want to make money. I want to live a good life. I want to be able to help others. The more money I make, the more people I can help, the more money I can give, the more things I can do. I mean, all of that surrounds the ability for me to make money in a capitalistic economy. It doesn't mean that I'm greedy. 
because I want to make more money than the next guy. That is my self-interest. And by the way, that's why socialism doesn't work. Every single one of the four of us has a different idea of what good money even is. It's always an expression I get from, from business owners. I'll ask them, I say, so what do you think good money is? And because and, you know, everybody says, well, you know, that guy makes really good money. Okay, so define what that term means. <laughs> yeah. Is good money sixty grand a year or 600000 a year? You know, define what that actually is for me because it, it, it's different for every single person that's out there. That's why socialism doesn't work because we all have different – probably the way to say this is self-interest. And I hate using the word greed. I do think there are people out there that are greedy, and I think there are some greedy you know, companies. But really, when it comes down to it, it's self-interest that they're after. There's a great quote that I'm reading right now. It's not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own self-interest. Yeah, it's a great point. Roger, really, that's the point that you were making uh, earlier. Yeah, it's really it, it, it comes down to the motives and it's it's all about what the condition of the human heart is. So this brings it back to kind of an evangelistic conversation. And I'm glad we're having this discussion here uh, with Bob Duco, John Rush and Neil Boron here on the National Crawford Roundtable. We'll take a quick break and we'll continue in just a moment. Dr. Michael Yusuf is leading the way for people living in spiritual darkness to discover the light of Jesus Christ. This tremendous outreach begins with the proclamation of God's Word, while the foundation of leading the way is the passionate, uncompromising biblical teaching of Dr. Michael Yusuf. Designed to not only effectively reach all who are lost, the purpose of leading the way is to equip and strengthen the church to stand strong and effectively advance the gospel in today's ever-changing world. To listen to Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Yusuf, go to ltw.org slash listen. And be sure to mention you heard about their program from the Crawford Podcast, NCR. You know, guys, this has been such an interesting discussion, especially the part about, you know, capitalism creating or encouraging greed. And it, it makes me wonder, Bob, I want to ask you questions because you've been putting me in the devil's advocate seat quite a bit today. I'll, put, I'll kind of put it back on you. Right. Socialism and these socialistic policies, as a lot of people define them, we're saying, well, wait, we're Christians and we're trying to help other people. I, mean, it, I don't think it's going to lead to corruption or anything else. I, what is your take on the the value of socialism? Do you think it actually makes people's lives better? Do you think it makes their hearts a little hardened to you know the things of God? What, what's your take? I on think it? it totally hardens their hearts. First of all, uh, socialism by by definition, when you force other people against their will to redistribute their wealth, what you do is you remove the human heart from the equation. Uh, if I see a poor person in need. And I know that the government has already reached into my pocket and taken some of my money to give to that poor person. It it removes me from the direct need that that person has. I kind of have that, hey, I already gave it the office mentality. And I would argue that socialism just causes people to exist more within their own worlds, their own bubbles. Let me Whatever little bit of money the government leaves left to me is what I'm going to focus on myself. And I don't have to think about other people in need. I don't have to be emotionally vested in their situation. I don't have to look them in the eye because the government's taken care of that already. No, I sincerely believe that socialism tends to harden people's hearts by removing them from the face-to-face reality of people in need. A capitalist free market society says, see that person that's homeless, see that person that's in need that needs food or, or clothing or care, 
you better step up and help that person because nobody else is doing it and you're the body of Christ. This is your responsibility to step up and help that person. You can't walk past someone that's in need if you know someone else isn't taking care of them already, let alone mm-hmm. if somebody else reached into your pocket to do it. So mm-hmm. as a believer, I want to come face-to-face with that. I want to see that sense of responsibility and, and, and grow as a Christian so that I step up and do that. I don't want to be removed from their pain. I want to see their pain, experience their pain, and be the one to provide the salve and, and the need for them. You know, I, I want to walk across. The, I want to be that Samaritan walking across and seeing the person who, who needs cared for and bind up his wounds. I don't want to say, uh, you know what, somebody else already took care of you. I already paid for that. It came out of my paycheck. And then just continue walking away. So, no. Guys, I, I think that uh, socialism and, and Neil, too, uh, to John and Roger's points here, I, I do believe that socialism does tend to harden people's hearts and it disconnects us from the real needs of people face-to-face. Yeah, it takes the responsibility off of any individual and says that the government will handle it, so don't worry about it. And then right. we're all out of the equation at that point. Um, you know, to, to back up for one second, I just I, there was a story I wanted to share. I didn't get to, to throw it in. Yeah, uh, I noticed the other day uh, my granddaughter is 18 months old and uh, Ella – Technically, really owns nothing. She doesn't have any money. She doesn't, you know, if the clothes she wears, her parents bought her. So she technically has no possessions. But she had one cookie, and uh, she wanted another cookie from her older brother. She wanted his too. And and I realized there's greed right there. And mm-hmm. you know, the the point is, you don't have to have a lot to experience greed. So it isn't even right. the guy earning sixty thousand or six hundred thousand. It could be the person who has nothing, who feels right. a sense of greed in their heart. And on the other hand, you got people. Uh, an example would be R.G. Letourneau. I don't know if that rings a bell, but he was uh, an inventor of earth-moving machines, large machinery, and, and mm-hmm. huge, uh, you know, player in uh, the Industrial Revolution and stuff. Uh, you know, post World War II. But by the time he died, he was obviously a multimillionaire. But he was living on only ten percent of his income. So there's a guy with tremendous wealth who was uh, giving away ninety percent of what he had. Mm-hmm. I just think – I think it was Bob that said it, and I love the statement that when you take the human heart out of it, everything changes. And, mm-hmm. yeah, I, does socialism – I think whether it's socialism or just handouts or whatever word you want to put on it, when you just start throwing stuff at people, they lack appreciation. They lack motivation and incentive to try to, yeah. to take care of their own problems. And it yeah. takes away uh, you know, the opportunity for others to get involved, like the church, to help address these things. I have, I have a question for you guys as well when it comes to some of those things that, I, that I've experienced on my own, and I'm guessing that maybe you guys have, but I want your opinion on this. We, in my life, I have known individuals, and most, for the most part, probably family members, because you know family real close. I mean, you, you know what they've done, what they've not done, the decisions that they've made, good, bad, otherwise. And there's times with even family where other family members will not help because they know that helping is really just giving them a crutch and you're really not helping them get to where they need to be. In fact, sometimes, and, and even and this is even biblical, sometimes the discipline and, and what needs to happen in a person's life, the, 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 um, you know, the downfalls sometimes are there so that we can learn. And if somebody's always there to keep handing somebody something, it's a problem that we've got with the current generation. They, they don't know failure. And sometimes failing 
is what we all need to learn so we don't do it again. And, and what I'm getting at is there's times where there'll be family members where, you know, they're, they're, they're running around looking for help. You know, somebody needs to pay the rent. Somebody needs to help them with this, help them with that, or the, you know, the cable bill or whatever it happens to be. And the family's saying, no, no, no. I mean, the reality is you need to learn how to do this on your own and you have the ability to do so. And yet they'll find some sort of assistance somewhere. And all they do is keep perpetuating the problem over and over again. So sometimes, guys, the best help for individuals is no help. Right, right. Well, because because it's enabling. You know, Dr. Dobson, as you know, would call that tough love. The world calls it hate speech now, so be careful. Right. Be careful where you go with that. Right. No, but it's very true, though. And it, you're not helping someone if you condition them to feel that they need to be dependent upon other people. I mean, charity is great for people that need it, but there's a lot of people who don't need it, but they've convinced themselves that they do. And because you develop this kind of dependency mentality, victimhood mentality, or in some cases just a flat-out entitlement mentality, that I'm entitled to something else that someone has that I don't have. You have more money than I do. That's economic injustice. I'm entitled to some of what you have. I'm entitled to things being given to me for free. I'm entitled to make as much money as that CEO makes of the corporation. It's not right that CEO should make 400 times what I make. By the way, i got to say on a side note, all of the people on the left who scream about your average corporate CEO who makes $5 million a year and his employees are making so much less than that, these are the very people that have no problem with Hollywood celebrities making about 10,000 mm-hmm. times a year right. more than the key grip mm-hmm. does on the set. You know, when, the, right. when the celebrity gets uh, $20 million for that movie, nobody's complaining about the disproportionate income right. between him and the workers on the set. And by the way, that actor is maybe providing 20 or 30 jobs. The CEO is providing thousands and thousands of jobs. So there's just a twisted perspective when it comes to this whole economic disparity issue. Yeah. Well, I I can assure you no one has ever gone to the movies and said, oh, boy, I hope so-and-so is the key grip for the craft services. (laughs) Yes, right. (laughs) Right. I know. I like to watch credits at the end because I have friends who work in that industry too. Neil, I just wanted to share something, kind of circle back around. We're talking grandkids here. Uh, you have an 18-month-old granddaughter. I have a two-year-old grandson. So we need to talk after the podcast is over because we kind of get this squared away now so we don't have to worry about it 20 years from now. <laughs> Bro, not, giving, not giving up her digits yet, man. No way. Okay. No, no way. Okay. Not yet. Yeah, but, the, but the point I think that you made was the fact that, and I see this with my grandson all the time too, greed is the default position of the human heart. You know, mm-hmm. the fact that you have something and I want it. And, you know, when we, we think it's cute when an 18 month Selfishness, guys. Yeah. Selfishness. Yeah. yeah. Well, but, but therein lies the rub. You know, self-interest, as John put it. But you have to learn how to use it in God's economy. And and kids don't care. They just, oh, you've no. got that. I want it, you know. And they, they remind us of the fact that the Bible is very clear. Envy is never a good thing. Jealousy can go either way. It could be powerfully positive or it can be powerfully negative. God says, I'm a jealous God. He wants what's best for us, you know, in that zeal. And he knows that he is what's best for us. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love does not envy. And a lot of this greed that we're talking about here really is, to Bob, your point, the, the, the guy who just started working at the company and says the CEO makes a $3 million a year and I'm making fifty grand. that's not right. You know, I'm going to strike or I want redistribution of wealth, which is ridiculous because that guy who punches out at 5 o'clock and gets to work from home four days a week doesn't have nearly the responsibility that the owner of the company and the CEO does. Doesn't right. have that, that sort of exposure. And I'll so, tell you what else he doesn't have. And, and John will certainly know this uh, in working with businesses. And, John, maybe you can address this fact. 
the CEO has particular skill sets that the guy working on the line or in the mm-hmm. cubicle doesn't have. The guy in the cubicle doesn't necessarily have the ability to drive up the stock value of the company. He doesn't have the ability to, to draw investors to that company. Yeah. He doesn't have the ability to uh, to attract investors from other places around the, con- the country and world. He doesn't have the ability to sell uh, banks and financial institutions to invest money into no. that company. There are a lot of skill sets and he doesn't have the, the vision and the ability uh, no. to do the things that the CEO of a company does. And that's what people need to realize. It's the worth and value of what that person brings. They don't have more worth and value in the eyes of God, but they certainly have more worth and value when it comes to the profitability that can be generated from that company. Okay. Now, it's a great, and by the way, great topic. Uh, let's take a quick break. This is one that's going to take a little bit of time to, to, to delve into. If it's got some even real world examples of what we're talking about. So let's take a quick break. This is the National Crawford Roundtable. Dr. James Dobson left a successful career in academia to preserve and promote the biblical family in America. The radio broadcasting ministry of Dr. Dobson has spanned more than four decades, earning him 17 honorary doctorate degrees and an induction into the National Radio Hall of Fame. Today, Dr. Dobson continues to champion marriage and parenthood through Family Talk. Listen every weekday at drjamesdobson.org and be sure to reference the Crawford Podcast, NCR. All right, guys, we're back. National Crawford Roundtable. So, Bob, you know, to answer that question, I've got some real world examples of that, and it happens a lot. So, I coach a lot of different businesses, mm. some of them being automotive repair shops, because that's the industry that I actually came out of. I still own another business that has nothing to do with that, but I was in that industry, literally grew up in it. I was in it my entire life, and still have a lot to do with it on a daily basis. And what happens in our industry is, is typically speaking, a technician, somebody's working on cars. We'll look at the owner and say, ah, you know, I can do this better than him. I'm much more prepared to do this. You know, I, I see the mistakes that this person makes, and he doesn't do this right. He doesn't do that right. And, Bob, to your point a moment ago, in a lot of cases, the worker, the, the guy that's kind of out in the field, doesn't even understand everything that's going on behind the scenes. And yet, yet, they feel like they know more about it than the guy that's actually running the company. So what do these guys do? They quit. They go get a little bit of money put together, and they fire up their own business. And frankly, those are the guys that I tend to coach the most because they don't have a clue what it takes to actually run a business. They're great technicians. They're great at fixing cars, but they don't know diddly squat about how to run a business. And I'm being very generous when I say that. They don't know anything. And literally, in a lot of cases, if they don't get help, they will lose enough money over time where they will actually go broke, and then they're, be, they're going back to being a technician. So, Bob, to your point, it's a great example of where everybody's critical of the guy at the top and they think that they can do it better and why do they make so much money and they shouldn't be able to. But to your point, they bring value to the organization that nobody else can. And by the way, those guys' jobs are on the line every single solid day. If at some point in time the returns aren't there for the investors, whether they be internal investors or they're in the stock market, that CEO is out of a job. And if he doesn't, he or she doesn't perform well on a consistent basis, right. they're not going to be working anywhere. So the reality is not only do they have to bring their skill set to the table and generate profit for the company, they have to continue to do so year after year or they're not going to have a job. That's a great point. Let's do this. In our last few minutes that we have here to I want to shift to another area of this socialism discussion. And it's something that we see a lot in politics. We know that uh, Bernie Sanders, of course, which, by the way, we're certainly all in agreement. Uh, we may not agree with Bernie Sanders and his politics, uh, but as believers in 
in Christ, we need to encourage everybody, of course, to be praying for Bernie Sanders and that uh, that he would recover fully. He had a heart scare and and the stents put in, and so certainly we we all lift up Bernie Sanders in prayer, and, and we would uh, hope and pray that uh, that he would be brought back to full health. That doesn't mean we support his policies. Uh, but uh, certainly as an individual and in his family, uh, we, we wish him all the best and, and quick recovery. Uh, but he talks about Medicare for all. He talks about you know free health care, free college. The, the Democrat candidates, uh, we're going to forgive college tuition and college debt and college should be a right that everyone is entitled to. Health care should be a right everyone is entitled to. Uh, and it does beg the question, should these things be quote-unquote Free, And that's what I want to talk about with you guys in our last uh, few minutes here. I would argue, number one, there's nothing that's free. If we have, quote, Amen. unquote, free health care, you are paying for it. Go to Canada. Go over to the U.K. Right. and look how much less take-home pay people have right. to pay for the health care. And then you add to that, everything they go and buy at the store is nickel and dimed with this federal tax here, federal tax there. So they're right. paying for this and they're getting lower quality of care in the process, which is why so many Canadians and Brits are flooding to the United States, uh, quite frankly, John, to get the, the kind of right. health care that they need. Well said. I had a son-in-law that passed away that was a citizen of Canada, and I'm here to tell you guys, passed away from, from cancer, from gallbladder cancer, yeah. that frankly, if he'd have been in the United States, uh, fully, fully convinced that he may have, he may have still died, but I can tell you one thing, his, his quality of care and the length of time I believe he would have been alive because of the, the long wait time and what it took to actually get things handled. I mean, from the time they found his cancer to when he actually had his first surgery was three months, guys. That's your Canadian free health care for you. That would have never, ever happened here in the U.S. Right. What's well, interesting about what you're saying is when I add this real quick, 75% of my listening audience, our WDCX listening audience is Canadian uh, because we reach Toronto and it's mm, the largest yes. city mm-hmm. in Canada. Right. We don't, we don't hear a lot of people in Canada complaining about their healthcare system, which is interesting. And yet, I think, honestly, it's because they don't know that it's different here. I mean, it's right. Uh, right. I, I don't think, I think that they've been lulled to sleep in many ways. And I'm not, I love all of our Canadian friends, but I really think they don't realize what better healthcare looks like. Uh, and for the most part, they seem comfortable with the Canadian healthcare system. That's a great point right. you make. I mean, a lot of my listeners here in Detroit are from Canada, Ontario, Canada. We go into their, and many of them, you're right. They, they, they don't have that point of reference of the United States. What they do is they go into a hospital and they walk out of the hospital and they say, oh, it's so nice that I wasn't handed a bill. Right? But then they right. don't realize, wait a minute, when I look at my paycheck, the amount of taxes that were taken out of my paycheck are a whole lot right. more than they would have been if I lived in the United States. When I go to the store and I, I load up my shopping cart with a bunch of stuff, I'm not realizing, that, wait a minute here, I'm actually paying more for these things than I would have paid for them if I was in the United States. Not to yep. mention the fact, as Neil pointed out, and it's an excellent point, Look at the average time it takes in Canada for someone to see a specialist. The average time is about 20 weeks, and that's across all of Canada. Some provinces, it's actually as much as 40 weeks to Mm. even see a specialist. How much more damage is done to your body's health during that time? And how much money are you losing for those that aren't able to work while they're waiting to see the specialist? And getting hooked on pain pills in the process. (laughs) You go, Bob. Oh, man, don't get me started. (laughs) No, and and guys, along those lines, I think there's a great example of how – 
we could change things in our country to where healthcare actually would work the way it's supposed to. And, and I know this is maybe a little bit of a stretch as an example, but, but I don't think it is. We all know about LASIK surgery, right? You guys all know about LASIK, oh, yeah. correct? Yeah. Okay, yeah. LASIK surgery even today is still not an insurable thing. The majority, unless it's some sort of a life-threatening situation, the average person is writing a check when it comes to LASIK surgery. So, you know, years and years ago, my wife had LASIK. It was very expensive, about 8000 bucks. It was $4,000 an eye by the time you got everything done. And today, you can have LASIK done for about 500 bucks an eye from a really good doctor. And there's probably even places out there that will do it for about 250 an eye. My point is this. If you let the free market handle things and the sub- supply and demand of, of things work their way out, everything ebbs and flows. And today, you can go get eye surgery done where you can actually see without glasses for 500 bucks to 1000 dollars Tell me that's not the free market and the way things should work when it comes to health care. It is. Powerful it is. point. Hey, Powerful. Final, final question I want to ask you guys. We'll wrap it up with this. The free college issue. Uh, it seems to me no. that well, – I know. That this <laughs> sounds good on the surface to people, but this goes back to the kind of entitlement mentality we were talking about before. You go to college – uh, it's not like the professors are going to work for free. Somebody still has to pay them. The college still right. has to pay their utilities and their taxes. The, somebody has to pay for the books. The, the, somebody has to pay for this stuff. What we're doing basically is teaching kids that they should be able to go to college, get something of value, which, by the way, I kind of question anyway, but that's a separate debate, but get something of value that they can den- then take that diploma, go out and make a bunch of money off of it, but they shouldn't have to pay for that education and that thing of value that they got. And people say, well, yeah, but a college education is necessary. Well, health care is necessary. Well, guess what? Food, clothing, and shelter are necessary too. So does that mean yeah. that the government should therefore provide – should the no. government pay my mortgage payment for me because after all, that's necessary? Should they pay my water bill for me because after all, water's necessary? Mm-hmm. So there is this this kind of mentality. And, and Roger, to, to the point that John was making uh, and on this issue – it does seem as though we're teaching and conditioning our youth today to say you should be able to take something of value, but you shouldn't have to pay for it like a college education. Absolutely. How do you keep making the claim that a college education has value if you keep making the push that it should be free? Yeah. I mean, the expression, if it doesn't you devalue cost you, it. you do. Right. You do. And again, you think back to the Old Testament and, you know, the, the, the example of sacrifices and saying, hey, I'm not going to sacrifice something I didn't pay for. I'm using it just a a quick broad, broad mm-hmm. stroke there. but but the fact that we have devalued something that we keep telling everybody has great value if you keep making it free and and we all know that like you said bob that the, the teachers aren't going to work for free i guess free college wouldn't have a political science department it wouldn't have an economics department it wouldn't have a business department i mean what kind of education would you get if you said hey this is free but we're not going to tell you about the basics of economics we're not going to teach you about a free market economy mm-hmm. we're not going right. to teach you regulations. I mean, right. that's the only kind of school that I think should be free. Yeah. I mean, in, in all honesty, someone's paying for it. And just because someone says, oh, we're not using tax money, we're using fees. Mm-hmm. You know, we're using administrative costs. I mean, whatever the, the euphemism is that they want to use in the government. Um, having three kids who chose community college, state university, and then have gone on to actually become uh, productive members of society. Um, I, we're, we're passionately against anything that, that looks like a free handout. Now, if someone earns a scholarship because there's a fund that says, hey, if you've reached different. a certain act, right. totally different ballgame. They've, they've, they've earned it then. Yeah. They yeah. have. Exactly. Can I just add, my, my three kids did the same thing, community <clears throat> college and then state college, that kind of thing. But what's interesting, I did go to college on a full athletic scholarship. 
and yet there were thousands of hours invested in exercise mm-hmm. and working That's out. Right. That when it, right. And so it was free, but I deeply valued that education because of everything that went into acquiring the scholarship yep. in the first place. Yep. All right. Well, and, and, guy, and just real quick in closing, you guys probably don't know this, but I am the least educated of the four of us. I've never been to college. I was doing good to get out of high school. And yet, and I'm not bragging, but I'm in the top 1% of earners in the U.S. So tell me you have to have a a college education to make money and survive in this country. And by the way, John, I I might compete with you for the least educated. I've never had a day of college myself as well (laughs) at Strictly High School. And even then, it was basically out through the door. (laughs) I know. So uh, we could talk about this all day, everybody. Uh, You know what? You can download and subscribe. To the National Crawford Roundtable podcast available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and more. And John Rush, Rush to Reason out of Denver, Roger Marsh, bottom line out of Southern California, Neil Boron, Neil Boron Live, Buffalo, New York, myself, Bob Duco here in Detroit. Gentlemen, always great talking with you. Thanks so much. We'll talk with you next week. God bless you, Bob. We'll see you. You've been listening to the National Crawford Roundtable podcast, a view of today's culture through a biblical lens. Thank you for joining us. You can download this podcast from Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And it is available at CrawfordBroadcasting.com. Be sure to watch for the next notification on your podcast app for when the next weekly edition is ready for you to hear. This has been a Crawford Broadcasting production.